All right, welcome everyone. Has everybody got a copy of the notes? Everybody got that? All right, we're here at uh, week eight. Week eight, and uh, we're taking up a new section. This is the fourth major section, really the final section before the conclusion. We've seen the greeting and thanksgiving. And then we saw a long section from 112 through 716 that's uh, very difficult to explain and understand because we're seeing one side of the conversation. Paul has had numerous back and forth with the people at Corinth, and he's sort of responding to, to the situation there. Uh, entitled it, Paul Defends His Ministry Against Criticism. He goes through a lot of different uh, uh, issues there. Then chapter 8 and 9 is fairly straightforward. That's the collection for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. We'll talk about that in a second here in relation to another verse that comes up later on here. And now we're ready to look at chapters 10 through 13, the final section, Paul Defends his apostolic authority. And I mentioned here in the notes that when we get to chapter 10, there's a kind of a change in tone from, if you just read through the epistle and you get to chapter 10, you get a little change in tone here. Um, This is probably explained, as I say, by Paul having gotten some news from Corinth, some more news. People are going back and forth. He's hearing things. Uh, He's probably written the first part of the letter. He set that down. Now he's writing the second part. Paul probably didn't write his letters all at once. These are long letters, you know. I mean, uh, people don't write letters anymore, but back when people wrote letters, they often wrote the first part. Then they might set it down, write some more. But these are long letters, and it's doubtful that Paul, he could have written Philippians all in one. It's even doubtful there. Most people think that, that uh, Paul actually has a break there in Philippians. Uh, but I won't spoil it for you. Wait for Pastor Ken gets there and he'll talk about it. But it's, it's likely that Paul put down his pen there for a while. So Paul probably dictated or wrote. Mostly Paul seems to dictate. And uh, then he uh, probably finished this first part. Some news comes and he takes up this defense of his authority here. And he talks about weapons. He speaks about weapons, but we're talking here about spiritual weapons, as you might imagine, in chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. So let's look at that. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of the world. Um, As I say here, it's clear from verse 1 that Paul had been accused of being courageous and bold when he's away from Corinth, that is, in his correspondence, such as the severe letter, you know, Paul will let it all hang out in the severe letter, he's very strong, his speech, but subservient and weak when he showed up in Corinth. Um, So, In verse 10, we'll read later, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Now this was on purpose 
as far as the Apostle Paul was concerned. But, yes? Do you have any more handouts? Sir? Is there any more handouts? Any more? We have an extra one. There's an extra one here. Yeah, I got two. By extra. Got two. I'll make a few more here. That's what you said, Carolyn. <laughs> Carolyn wanted to make some more yesterday, but I said, nah, we don't need any more, Carolyn. <laughs> You gotta listen to her, isn't it? <laughs> so, um, Paul says in First Corinthians, so it was, so, so, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. Remember, we talked about how that uh, in the ancient world there were speakers who went from place to place and they mesmerized people, people were interested in them. They spoke philosophy. They, they gave talks. And the, the ideal speaker was someone who was tall, dark, and handsome. Someone who had charisma, just natural charisma. And someone who could speak very well, very eloquent, and so forth. And uh, Paul sees that as, as that could be a problem because you could, you could focus all your attention on the person and not on the message. So Paul says, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Is it getting warm in here? Always. <laughs> Oh, he turned it off. So, um, the Corinthians are mesmerized by these kinds of speakers. Paul purposely does not like that approach. He wants to focus on the message of Christ and so forth. And so I say, uh, you know, the Living Bible translates this paraphrastically. He's afraid to raise his voice when he gets here. So here's this great Paul, and he can write these tremendous letters, but when he gets here, he's nothing. He just, he just has nothing, man. I say this, this charge, Paul, this charge, Paul ironically repeat, repeats in one B, as an introduction to an appeal. I beg you to all the Corinthians regarding a vocal minority, some people who persisted in thinking that worldly standards and motives governed all his conduct and that he relied on human powers and methods in his ministry. <clears throat> so we get the first glance here that these are outsiders. He says, I expect to be towards some people. He doesn't say some of you, but some people. And you'll see this reference to some people. So there are these outsiders, as we'll see, especially when we get to chapter 11, he'll talk about them, who have come into the church and they're trying to impress the people by the way they speak, uh, by their language and so forth, and they're downgrading, they're putting down the Apostle Paul. So Paul uses irony here. So if I was to read this like I think Paul means it, he would say something like, by the humility and gentleness of Christ I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face, but bold when away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be. So we're talking here, Paul is going to be using irony throughout this section, and I'll call attention, I'll try to point it out. It's hard to see, but what is irony? 
Irony has two basic meanings. What we might call an ironic situation. This is a combination of circumstances or a result that is the opposite of what is or might be expected or considered appropriate. So we can have ironic situations, like the irony of the firehouse burning down. So the firehouse burns down, we say, oh, isn't that ironic? Isn't that ironic? That's an ironic situation. It's the opposite, just the opposite. You wouldn't expect the firehouse of all places to burn down. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about number two, what we might call ironic speech, a method of humorous, humorous or subtly sarcastic expression in which the intended meaning of the words used is the direct opposite of their usual sense. For example, the irony of calling a stupid plan clever. We might say somebody does something stupid. We might say, oh, that's clever. <laughs> right? Oh, that's clever. We don't mean it's really clever. We mean it's stupid, but we call it that. It's our irony. It's sarcasm. Light irony of this kind is a form of humor. Severe irony is usually a form of sarcasm or satire. That's what we have here in uh, Second Corinthians. We have this kind of sarcasm, actually. So uh, I say here, what Paul wished to avoid on his forthcoming visit was the display of boldness, boldness when present, not absent. <clears throat> Nevertheless, he explains that he's ready to exercise his apostolic authority, whatever the outcome. If the Corinthians do not repudiate his opponents and mend their ways... Now, Paul has apostolic authority, and uh, he is going to be talking about, if, I, if necessary, I will come and exercise my authority as an apostle. Now, he mentions this in 1 Corinthians 4.21. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love with a gentle spirit? So as an apostle, Paul could come and actually exercise discipline. He's, you know, we don't have any apostles today. We have church discipline where the congregation decides on disciplining someone. But the apostles had authority over the congregations here. Paul does. He says later in 2 Corinthians 13, 10, this is why I'm writing these things when I'm absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority of the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. So Paul has apostolic authority to actually do some pretty terrific things here. They wouldn't seem so good. Now remember, remember Acts chapter uh, 5, Ananias and Sapphira, right? You remember what happened to them and uh, in that situation where they actually died, actually, because of their disobedience. That was an unusual situation. But it actually actually happened. You remember uh, in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. And the first place they go is Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. And they go across the island and they come to Paphos. And there they meet the proconsul, the governor of Cyprus, a man by the name of Sergius Paulus. You remember that incident there? And uh, there is this sorcerer who has power over the, the, the proconsul. His name is Elimus, uh, or Bar-Jesus, and he's, he's got this power. You know what Paul does to him? He just blinds him. <laughs> Remember that? He, he says, you're going to be blind. You're going to walk around blind. So apostles had powers, believe me. 
They could exercise discipline. So this is no empty threat when Paul talks about this. He doesn't want to have to show this kind of boldness when he's present. That's not what he's looking to do. But he can if he has to. Verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So these spiritual weapons, Paul says, the gospel, the truth of the scriptures, they can they can work they can do spiritual things. They can demolish spiritual strongholds, evil and wickedness. They can attack these kind of things that physical weapons can't. So I say here, Paul draws a clear distinction between living in the world and worldly conduct and techniques. He doesn't know that he lives in the everyday world with his limitations, trials, frustrations. However, he is a spiritual warrior, and a spiritual warrior demands spiritual weapons. We think of Ephesians 6, you know, the, the armor of God. So faith and righteousness and truth. So Paul is saying, that's the kind of weapons that I'm talking about using. Remember, he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 6 and 7, impurity, understanding, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, sincere love, truthful speech, the power of God with weapons of in the right and the left hand. So Paul says, these are the kind of spiritual weapons that confront this kind of false teaching that these people are bringing in. Verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Say so here, Paul now identifies these strongholds that crumble before the weapons of the Spirit, human reasonings and philosophies which are opposed to God, or as Paul expresses in 1 Corinthians 3.19, the wisdom of the world. This phrase, every pretension, refers to any human act or attitude that forms an obstacle to the emancipating knowledge of God containing the gospel, and thus keeps men in oppressive bondage to sin. Close related is the expression, every thought. So Paul probably means by this, every human scheme designed to frustrate the divine plan. Paul is, wants to bring everything into obedience to Christ, all the Corinthians. They're following these kind of false teachers. They're being led astray. Uh, Paul wants to bring their thoughts, their ideas into captivity, that is, into Christ. Verse 6. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. I say here, Paul is far from being a spiritual wimp. And if circumstances forced him, he's ready to turn from humility and gentleness to a stern assertion of his authority. From appeal to discipline, his plan of action was in two stages. First, there was the need to bring the Corinthians' obedience to completion. This would be achieved when they disassociate themselves with his opponents and fully recognized Paul's apostolic authority. Second, there was the punishment of every act of disobedience performed by his adversaries from Palestine or in any Corinthians who remain insubordinate. Precisely what form of punishment would take is left unstated. But remember I've said Paul has this apostolic authority. He can do some stuff that, uh, that wouldn't be so pleasant. Now remember, the point here is Paul wants to bring the Corinthians around to his way of thinking. Because his way of thinking is the right way of thinking. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. He is the authority. He's the representative of Christ on earth. And what he says is right and what these false teachers says are wrong. They're following this false doctrine. And so Paul wants to bring them around to his way of thinking. Before he can really 
oppose these false teachers, he's got to get the Corinthians on his side. He's got to get them to see what he says is true, what he's taught them is true, what they believed is true. These false teachers who have come in, they're leading them astray, and they've got to see that. And so he can't really get... Uh, he can't really do much with these false teachers until the Corinthians agree with him. I mean, that's the way it is with church discipline, you know, in churches. Church discipline is a congregational thing. So when the church decides to exercise church discipline, the congregation has to agree, yes, this is right and this is necessary. And if you can't get the congregation to agree... You're gonna have you're gonna have troubles. I'm, I'm I'm thinking about a situation. I don't know all the details, but I'm, uh, a pastor friend who was in a church in New Jersey recently, according to what I heard, I don't know. I'm just saying there was some real sin among the leadership of the church, some sexual immorality among the leaders of the church, and they the church wouldn't do anything about it. <laughs> The church leadership said, no, we're not touching that. We're not doing anything. And the pastor kind of pursued that. Then he started getting attacked, you know, and he left the church eventually, that kind of thing. So uh, you've got to have the congregation. has got to be together in supporting the truth. And that's what Paul wants here. He wants the church to back him so he can go forward. And then punish this disobedience. Once your obedience is complete, once once you're, you you understand the truth and see what's right, you see who I am, and he's going to explain who he is and lay out his credentials in just a second. Verse 7, you are judging by appearances. That's the whole point of these people who have come in. It's all about appearance. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So as I say, they're judging by outward appearances. And these people had impressive credentials. So if we look around 2 Corinthians, look ahead, we can see some of these uh, credentials. Um, I was going to show you that that, te- that text there. Uh, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who give an account, the writer of Hebrews says. Uh they have an impeccable heritage. Later, Paul will say in 11.22, are they Hebrews? So they're claiming to be Jewish. So am I. Are they Israelites? They're claiming to be Israelites. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. So these people are coming into the church. They're claiming to be from Jerusalem. They're claiming to be Jewish. They're claiming these credentials. Letters of reference. Remember, we talked about that. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need like some people, some people, those outsiders, letters of reference. So these people are bringing letters of reference. Now, we don't know the details of this, but it appears these people are from Jerusalem. They probably are claiming that they represent the apostles in Jerusalem. We think that's false, but they probably are claiming that. They have letters of recommendation, skillful speaking. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. So apparently, you know, that's the contrast. Paul doesn't have this speaking ability. They do. They've learned this art of rhetoric. So if you were educated in the Roman world in Paul's day as a male, primarily, 
you, uh, the highest form of training when you get to the high school level is rhetoric, the ability to speak, to carry on a conversation, because this was necessary. It was necessary in the Greek world, the Roman world. If you wanted to appear in the assembly, if you wanted to speak, if you wanted to speak in, in a certain situation, the ability to persuade people by your speech, by extemporaneous speech, that was absolutely essential in the ancient world. And these people had it. Paul says, I may not be trained as a speaker. He wasn't trained in Greek rhetoric. But I do have knowledge. Take charge personality. Now here's where the irony comes in. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. I mean, you, these people are treating you, you know, mean, but you take it. <laughs> you, you accept it and so forth. So these people had these credentials and these outward things appear to be very impressive. I say here, Paul's opponents were aware that the most successful way to undermine his effectiveness was to cast doubt on the genuineness of his apostleship. If his converts could be persuaded that he lacked apostolic credentials, they would cease to believe his uh, his teaching. So they attempted to use these credentials that they had as a way to determine who's a genuine apostle. So this phrase here that says... Uh, if anyone is confident they belong to Christ, they consider consider that we belong to Christ. Now, normally we'd think that means someone's a Christian. To belong to Christ means to be a Christian. But it, I think it. most commentators think it means much more here because they are saying more than they belong to Christ. They're saying more than they're a Christian. They're saying they're special representatives of Christ, that they have this unique relationship. They're apostles of Christ here. And Paul says, well, I have the same relationship. So... Paul is, in fact, again, defending his apostleship. He's defending his authority as an apostle. Uh, I say here, what ought to be obvious to Paul's readers is that even granted for the sake of argument the claims of his opponents to be Christ, later he'll deny that. He said these are false apostles. They're from Satan. He himself is equally so. So Paul is saying, if they can make a subjective, a subjective claim that they belong to Christ, that they're Christ's representatives, why can't I do it? I have the same right to make this claim. And later, he will give some objective criteria for judging his apostleship, especially when he gets to chapter 12. He'll lay out some criteria here. So in all this, his motive was not personal vindication, but he's desiring to save the church from apostasy. False teachers have come in. He's got to defend the fact that he is an apostle. He is actually the apostle of the Gentiles. Verse 8. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gives us for building you up, rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. So even if it might be true that Paul felt compelled to boast somewhat freely about his apostolic authority, he was confident that he would not be embarrassed by a charge of exaggeration or deception. Paul's boast could be substantiated from the results of his ministry. So everyone in Corinth knows the result of Paul's ministry. Paul comes into town. We have a church here. This church has been built up. And now we have these false teachers who've come in, these false apostles, and they're creating friction. They're tearing down. The Lord gave me my authority for building up, not for tearing down. But these people are tearing down. So Paul is stressing the divine origin of his authority here. 
and the fact that he employs his authority for the common good. It's for building you up. Verse 9, I don't want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters we are apt when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. So I say here, although Paul could legitimately boast about his God-given authority, he refrains from expanding his simple claim in verse 8, lest he appear to be frightening the Corinthians into submission by his weighty and forceful letters. So Paul didn't want to give any substance to the charge that, well, he's afraid to say anything in person. He just says it all in his letters. He's afraid to give anything, uh, any substance of that. So uh, Paul doesn't want to go any further at this point, he says, in his letters. Because uh, in the amount of, in, in, in the eyes of some of Paul's um, uh, of some of Paul's opponents, his speaking ability, remember, amounts to nothing. He can't really do anything at all in person. Um, but Paul reminds them, when he's present, he would act precisely as he did in his letters. He says, such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, when we will be in our actions when we are present. And I mentioned you know, the case of Acts 13 that I can think of, or the Bar-Jesus episode. Paul has this apostolic authority. Um, um, verse uh, Chapter 13. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Well, what does that mean? I'm not going to spare these people. He's going to whoop uh, their butt. <laughs> <laughs> that was the living Bible paraphrase. <laughs> I said, what does that mean? She said, he's going to whip their butt. <laughs> well, he does have authority, you know, to bring about physical discipline here. 1310. You know, we've read that before. This is why I write these things when I'm absent. For when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building up, not for tearing down, but I can be pretty harsh if I have to here. So Paul has authority, this apostolic authority that he can use. Well, let's talk about uh, Paul's sphere of service, Acts 10, 12 through 18. Paul now demonstrates what the opposition to him was all about. And it was not because the false teachers were concerned about the true spiritual welfare of the Corinthians. The goal of these teachers who come to Corinth was to take over Paul's legitimate sphere of authority. They were encroaching upon Paul's territory that God had given him the right to evangelize and to administrate uh, they wanted to push Paul out. So Paul makes some charges against his opponents here, three charges. First, he says, we do not dare classify or compare ourselves with some, these false teachers, who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. So the first charge is his opponents are not wise. It's rather foolish for them to appeal to their own conduct as normative and then find great satisfaction and always measuring up to that standard. Now, that's what we do is depraved human beings, don't we? 
we, you know, if you meet people and you ask them what's their relationship with God, it's, you know, it's pretty good. And how do they know? Because they've set the standard, you know. I treat my wife well, I pay my bills, I treat my neighbors good, I take care of my children. They've set the standard on what is right and proper, and so they conform to that standard pretty easily. Well, that's what Paul is saying here. These false apostles set the standards. They measure themselves by themselves. In that sense, they're not wise. So it's rather subjective. Verse 13, we, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will continue our boasting, confine our boasting, I'm sorry, to the sphere of service God has assigned to us, a sphere that includes you. We are not going too far in our boasting as would be the case if we had not come to you with the gospel, you know, at first in Acts chapter 18. For we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. This expression here, we did get as far as you, is a little unusual verb. Some people translate it, we did get as far as, or we were the first to preach to you. So Paul is saying, we are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we hadn't come to you as as the person who brought you the gospel in Acts chapter 18. And we brought you, we were the first to preach to you the gospel. Uh, So I say here, the second charge against his opponents is a breach of contract. The activity of the false apostles at Corinth encroached on Paul's legitimate province or sphere because it violated the the agreement of Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Now we assume, since these people are from, claim to be from Jerusalem, Jerusalem oriented, that they would be aware of the agreement of Galatians 2, 1 through 10. So let's go back in time for a moment here. Remember, we are at at Paul's, uh, we're at Paul's third missionary journey, uh, Paul's, uh, Paul's third missionary journey here. And we are in the year 56, 57. Paul is in Macedonia. He's writing to Corinth, you know. This is Acts chapter 20. Uh, Think back about uh, Galatians chapter 2. The book of Galatians was written about A.D. 49. After Acts 14. In Acts 13 and 14, Paul's first missionary journey, he evangelizes the churches in Galatia. That's Antioch of Pisidia, Derby, Lystra, Iconium. Those are the churches of Galatia. Paul evangelizes those churches. And in Acts 14, he comes back to the church at Antioch, and there he writes the epistle to the Galatians. And you remember, he's defending his apostleship there in chapter 1 because... These Judaizers have come into the churches of Galatia. Paul has to defend himself. But then he says this in Galatians 2. He says, then after 14 years later, he's explaining his relationship to the Jerusalem apostles here. Because they're saying, the false teachers are saying, this apostle Paul, he's nothing, man. Uh, he's kind of a, he's just a subservient to the Jerusalem apostles. He, he, he's not really a real apostle. Remember Pastor Tim last week he was it last week he was talking about it wasn't last week, it was in a class on Wednesday night. He was talking about the twelve apostles, you remember? And uh, he was saying 
you know, what about Matthias? You know, we were talking about, there was a question about Matthias, because Judas apostatizes, and uh, what about Matthias? And uh, and it looks like in the New Jerusalem there's going to be the 12 apostles, the names of the 12 apostles. Well, who's that going to be? If you got, is Matthias there, or is the apostle Paul? I was trying to get Pansy to, to raise her hand and tweak him and say, is, you know, where, where is... I wouldn't... It is, it, is the Apostle Paul on that... Uh, well, I, I can answer that. No, he's not. Paul is not one of the twelve. The twelve include Matthias, but he is the apostle of the Gentiles. And we see that right here. Paul is going to defend his authority, and notice what he says. He says, then after 14 years, I went up again to the Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along... I went in response to a revelation and meet and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. Now this is the visit that Paul and Barnabas make to take some funds to relieve the suffering because of the famine there in Jerusalem. It's called the famine relief. He says, I presented them the gospel. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks in Antioch to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. So false teachers were coming into Antioch saying, these Gentiles must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And Paul says, no. And so... So Paul and some others went from Antioch in Acts 15 down to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council. Let's hash this out. What is the relationship of Gentiles to the law? Paul says, as for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were, makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. So these people in high esteem, these pillars in the church, Jerusalem church, these apostles... They didn't add anything to my message. Because remember he says in chapter 1 of Galatians, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, not from man, nor neither by man. He says, I didn't get my apostleship. I got it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So on the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, to the Gentiles, just as Peter been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle of the circumcised, was also at work in me as the apostle to the Gent- as an apostle to the Gentiles. So that's how Paul fits in. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. The twelve are basically to the circumcised. Now they evangelize some Gentiles too, but their mission was mainly to Israel. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, James, Peter, and John, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me as an apostle. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So there is the agreement. The point is, as well, you know, they settled, they settled the thing. No, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. Titus, who came with us, didn't have to be circumcised. Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. So I'm going to go out to the Gentile regions and I'm going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. They're going to, they're, they're basically to the circumcised. They're basically to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I haven't been eager to do all along. Well, of course, that's what was going on in chapters 8 and 9 of this epistle, right? Is Paul's taking this offering. So he's still 
thinking about that. He's still doing that. Still continuing to do that. So, uh, I say here, Paul refused to boast of what had occurred beyond the limits of his own ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles. In boasting about his sphere at Corinth and appealing by implication to the very existence of the Corinthian church as vindication of his apostleship, he was not going too far or overstepping his limits since historically his God-ordained field had included Corinth. Remember, that's what God told Paul on the Damascus Road and what Ananias came and told him in Acts chapter 9. You're going to be going to the Gentiles. That's what, that's what, I've, that's what I've saved you for. That's what I'm calling you for. Your mission is to open the gospel to the Gentiles. So uh, Paul is saying, my purpose was to go and preach the gospel in places where it had not been preached. Remember, later in, Paul is in Macedonia right now. He's going to come to Corinth shortly after he writes this letter. And he's going to write the epistle to the Romans. And he writes off to the Romans and he says... I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey by what I have said and done. That's my mission, the gospel of the Gentiles. By the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. That's what an apostle has. An apostle, as Paul will tell us in chapter 12, can be identified by signs, miracles, and wonders. So from Jerusalem and all the way to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. I have finished in the East, Paul says. I finished. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. So Paul says, I preached the gospel all through here. All Galatia, all Asia, Macedonia, Greece, all the way up to Illyricum here. Now we don't. The Book of Acts doesn't tell us how he got up there. You know, it doesn't doesn't mention that. But somehow, he tells us here. Listen, I even got up into that area. So I have finished here, and I'm writing to the church at Rome, saying, "Listen, I want to come your way. I want to go to Spain. I want to start in the West, and I want you to be my home church, as Antioch was in the East, because I have sort of finished." Now Paul didn't evangelize everybody, but as we'll see. Paul's purpose was to preach in the major cities and let those churches evangelize those areas. I say here, Paul was not opposed to others helping him in the ministry. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he talks about Apollos and how Apollos came to Corinth. And he says, you know, we're both servants, we're co-workers. I planted Apollos water, and that's a wonderful thing. That's a good thing. So I'm not opposed to help, you know, but the false teachers were not in Corinth to aid Paul, but to supplant him, to supplant his apostolic authority. Verse 15. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of the work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory. Paul's third charge is that his opponents have been prodding themselves for work already done by others. They have, they have boasted probably that anything that's been successful at Corinth is not due to that phony Paul, but it's due to us. We're the people who have really helped you people in Corinth. 
I say the Corinthian intruders amongst, uh, presented a, another serious problem for Paul in that they were disrupting his evangelistic strategy. So Paul's evangelistic strategy, as we see it in the book of Acts and in the epistles, is to try to expand, as he says here, the uh, area of his activity among his converts. He says, remember he says, our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly abound. So as I said, it was Paul's practice to evangelize the uh, urban sinners and then let others do the rest of the work. Paul spent three years in Ephesus. And he actually started a seminary there, remember? The uh, Ephesus Baptist Seminary was in the house of Tyrannus, in that lecture hall of Tyrannus. Remember that? Lecture hall of Tyrannus. So Paul is there three years in Ephesus. But you know, when we see like the book of Revelation, we see all these other churches there that are mentioned. Now we know about Colossae because Paul says that I didn't actually establish a church at Colossians. It was Epaphras, one of my disciples. So Paul is in Ephesus. People are coming into Ephesus. They're being saved. They're going out to these other places. And probably that's how these churches got established. I don't know that, but I'm just suggesting that's probably how they got established. That was Paul's policy. Go to the urban centers, reach the people there, and then let them evangelize the surrounding areas. So uh, they were disrupting this evangelistic policy. Because if they're not with the Apostle Paul here, they're not going to be carrying out his policy of evangelizing the surrounding areas around Corinth. There's plenty of places in Greece that need evangelization, and these people are interfering with that. So Paul wanted to have this carried out in Corinth and the surrounding areas so he can go on to Spain, to the western part of the Roman Empire, and finish his work there. Verse 17. But let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So just like we saw in 1 Corinthians one thirty one, if you read that, you know he quotes Jeremiah 9.24. Paul's opponents, remember, they were boasting in their own accomplishments. But Paul was were quick to boast about work done in somebody else's territory. But that's illegitimate. Paul says the only proper ground of boasting is... Boasting really in the Lord, not boasting in what somebody else has done. So I say here, this, the kind of self-commendation Paul's opponents practice is really a disqualification. Only those who boast in the Lord and give the Lord the glory do him will enjoy the Lord's commendation at the judgment seat. Well, let's look at Paul's jealousy for the Corinthians. He says, I hope you will put up with a little with me in a little foolishness. Yes, put up with me. Now remember, this is irony here. So if I read it ironically, oh, I hope you'll put up with a little of my foolishness. Oh yeah, please put up with me. You know, this is very irony, very sarcastic. You know, I hope you'll put up with a little of my foolishness. See, they're calling what he says foolishness, and Paul is making fun of that. He means the opposite. It's not that what he says is foolishness. Oh yeah, put up with me. The news of the worsening situation at Corinth now leads Paul to abandon his normal aversion towards self-praise and to boast in his ministerial achievements. Now, Paul doesn't like to do that, in fact, but in chapter 11, we'll see that Paul will boast in his achievements. 
He's not comfortable, so as he says later in 12.11, I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. Paul has previously stated that self-praise is inadmissible and worthless, but he realizes that the present situation demands it if his converts at Corinth are to be preserved intact for Christ. So these adversaries are indulging in self-praise. They're talking about their accomplishments. So reluctantly, Paul has got to lay out his accomplishments here. He's got to lay out his apostolic authority, his credentials. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. The reason I'm doing this is because I'm concerned about you. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So he uses this illustration here. And the illustration is designed to suggest here that uh, just as... uh, the betrothal, we have the betrothal, and then we have the marriage. So I promise you to one husband, that's the betrothal, that speaks of their conversion. So you were converted. I, I, I promised you to one husband, that's the betrothal, that's your conversion, so that I might present you at your glorification. So Paul's concerned about what happens between their conversion and their ultimate glorifications. I'm at glorification. I'm concerned that you'll be deceived. Just like Eve was deceived by the cunning of the serpent. And these people are false teachers. They're Satan's emissaries, as he will say. I say here, while human, while human jealousy is advice, divine jealousy is a virtue. Paul shares in that godly jealousy because he's concerned with the Corinthians' loyalty to Christ. He's their spiritual father. He's concerned that their devotion to Christ is wavering. The reason for Paul's jealousy for the Corinthians was his fear based on disturbing evidence that their minds and affections might be corrupted so they would lose their single-minded affection to Christ. Well, I see we've gone over, so we better stop here, and I'll try to pick it up here next time, and we'll continue on. Thank you very much for your attention.